0: Jump into week twelve of our series titled Equipped um, as you know for the for the past number of weeks uh, this being week twelve we've been focusing on talking about spiritual disciplines and for the past few weeks we've zeroed in on the spiritual discipline of prayer and how to use it as a means by which we can process some of the most difficult Complex emotions that we experience in this life, and I think this is important. And here's why: I think the the uh, what we end up going through in life, uh, it can it can cause us to be struck by overwhelming guilt and shame. Uh, there are times where the things we experience in this life cause us to lose complete control of our anger. There are times that what we experience really causes us to question things that we were so certain of, maybe even drive us into what I would just call kind of a crisis of faith. And, and if, that's, if, that's, uh, if that's not relatable, I think every single one of us has moments in this life where we're really just struck by the staggering reality that everything this side has an expiration date. And so the emotions that life elicits I think they can be pretty powerful, and I think um, I think we can attest I think all of us can really attest to the fact that if we don 't process those emotions rightly, they can be so overwhelming that they 'll take a toll on every single area of our lives but but i've been i 've been kind of rattling this question around in my mind for a few days now, and the question is this like what if theres a way what if there was a way to process these really powerful emotions that led to Instead of emotional breakdown, it actually led to emotional health. And um, the more that I think about it, I think the pathway to emotional health is less about a life free of the things that take us on the emotional roller coaster or a life free of anger or sadness or fear. And I think it's more about a life in which we're allowing those strong emotions to drive us into a deeper relationship with God. And I think um, you probably know this, this probably isn't news to you if you've been following Jesus for any any number of days, that that prayer is one of the, the, the ways that we can most deeply and intimately connect with God. And I think that it's when we start to process our emotions through prayer that we start taking strides towards the emotional and spiritual health. That I think we really, really want, and uh, I think there's a great tool that we have in the Book of Psalms because of the way that it's written. It's almost like a guidebook that shows us how to process these these deeply powerful, strong emotions that we experience in this life um, in a very appropriate way. And I think the Psalms are very unique in that uh, they they offer us kind of this. Insider perspective on people who are having emotional breakdowns. They're kind of a window into the ebb and flow that I think you and I experience with the emotional swings. There's raw guilt, there's raw sadness, there's raw shame, there's raw fear and anxiety. And to an extent, when we encounter the way that those things are written, I think we saw an example of this last week when we took a look at anger. And I think the verse verse had the psalmist saying, take their little ones and dash their heads against a rock. Extremely anger uh, rich. Um, It seems almost unbridled. But I'm here to tell you that never are those psalms unbridled anger. What they are is an outward like purposeful refusal of the writer to deny what's actually going on in their own heart. And I think sometimes we struggle with this kind of emotional transparency because maybe we were raised in a home where we were taught to suppress those powerful emotions or deny them. We're taught, and even if it wasn't directly, that the best way to take control of your emotions is to just refuse to admit that they're there. And if that's not relatable, maybe maybe you grew up in a in a home where you were taught to believe that the best way to process your emotions was to just vent them to anyone and everyone who was willing to listen regardless of whether or not it ever actually led to resolution or you ever got the help that you actually needed. And so the point that I'm driving at is I think denial and I think venting are certainly ways of coping with our emotions, but I don't I don't think that either of those as options lead to emotional health and stability. But I do think that the psalms offer something different because they provide us with this unique approach to our emotions that allows us to be extremely authentic about what our emotional state is without being controlled by them. They they, they show us time and time again that if we want to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, the best way to process our emotions is through prayer. And so today uh, we're going to talk about an emotion that I think has profound influence in our lives. It can have profound power over our lives, and that emotion is fear. I think fear is part of everyone's lived experience. I think it's part of everyone's life to some degree or another. And uh, there's a psalm that deals directly with fear that we're going to take a look at today, and it's going to show us how to process the deeply powerful emotions of fear and anxiety through prayer. So turn with me to Psalm 3, and here's what it says It says, Lord, how my foes increase, there are many who attack me, many say about me, there is no help for Him in God, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, My glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and He answers me from His holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I am not afraid of the thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Um, now, Psalm 3, I really kind of see it as a window into the life of someone whose life came completely unraveled. And I think what tends to happen when our lives bottom out like this is that we're overwhelmed with deep fear and anxiety. And I'm sure you know that one of the byproducts of fear. Is anger. And there's a clear picture of what really appears to be unbridled fear. It's right in verse 7, and here's what it says um, It says, Strike all my enemies on the cheek, break the teeth of the wicked. And um, I think this is just emotional transparency at its finest. It's not unbridled anger, it's a picture of someone refusing to. To, to suppress what's really going on in their own heart. And instead of, instead of suppressing their emotions, what they're doing is they're processing their fear and anxiety and the anger that comes with it through prayer. And now uh, I think it's important for me to note and just for me to keep in mind in my own personal prayer life that praying our fear and anxiety, it doesn't mean that we approach God with these neatly manicured prayers or that we try to scribe these these, these well-put uh, neatly put together journal entries when we're processing things like fear and anxiety. I think what processing your fear and anxiety through prayer really means is being completely like open and honest with God about what's really going on in your own heart, even the parts that come off as anger. And so what's evident in this psalm is that when we process our fear and anxiety in this way, when we process it through through prayer, it can actually lead To emotional health and stability. And see, just to give you a little bit of context, this psalm was written by David uh, during a time when he was facing some pretty legitimate threats. His son Absalom had launched a coup d'état, chased him off of the throne, and so David, when he wrote this, he was a fugitive on the run um, from armies that had literally been commissioned to capture and kill him. And what he's doing here is he's openly talking about what it's like to have everything you've built your life on stripped away from you unexpectedly. And then buried, right in the, it's kind of right in the middle of this psalm, it's in verses 5 and 6, he says something that I think is, is very telling. And it actually, I, I think it's evidence for me personally, and I'm offering it to you as evidence that he's found a way to process his fear and anxiety in a way that set him free. Of their power over him. and it's actually driving him closer to God. Here's what he says. He says, "I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I'm not afraid of the thousands of people who've taken their stand against me on every side. No, no I, these to me just don't sound like the words of an individual who's paralyzed by fear, uh, which begs the question, how can someone dealing with such deep fear and anxiety find rest and freedom? In the face of it, I think the uh, the answer to that question is embedded in Psalm 3. And so here's how I want to approach this Psalm with us today. First, I want to show you two levels of fear that uh, I see in the Psalm. I've also experienced them in my own personal life, and I'm sure that you have too. And then secondly, I want to show you three things that you can do to process your fear and anxiety. Through prayer, But b- before, I, before I do that, I do think it's important for me to point out that my aim today is not to talk about clinical anxiety. I'm not an expert in that field. I think that it would be unreasonable uh, for me to, to do a talk in 30 minutes that really got to the bottom of clinical anxiety. My aim today, however, is to really help us think about ways that we can process through prayer the normal routine fear and anxiety that we experience to varying degrees through the ups and downs in this life. So let's, let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the two levels of fear. I'm in verse one and here's what it says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. So this first level of fear that I see, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your own life is a level. It's a fear that's tied to something external. David is under literal physical attack. Uh, Now for most of us, I think we we oftentimes find ourselves feeling like David felt, as if thousands of people are after us, when really all we've done is just over-exaggerate the tiff we had with our spouse, or the heat we're getting in the comment thread, or the way that our bosses mean, or the conflict in our neighborhood. Um, But I do want to point out that there are um, literally billions of people right now who are experiencing legitimate threat, legitimate physical threat, the same way that David is things like war and slavery and human trafficking are very real atrocities that are taking place and so I don't I don't want to be insensitive to people that are facing those things all I'm saying is that generally speaking when I zoom in on my life and I wake up in the morning I don't have an army of people threatening my physical well-being. Um, but what this is, that is what David was facing and this for him was devastating. And here's why the army that wants to kill him, he's now running from, he's running from in fear. This was an army that he used to He used to command. And the only reason they're after him is because his son, someone that was near and dear to his heart, someone that he loved deeply had turned his back on David Backstabbed him and he's now taken over the throne and he's commissioned david's army to capture and kill him And so what i'm really doing is just pointing out that sometimes in our lives whether it's an army or not There's a layer of fear that comes at us externally and here's what happens Here's why we get fearful and anxious it threatens our well-being it threatens our sense of security But then in verse two There's a deeper level of fear and that's tied to something internal. And, and here's what David says in verse two. He says, many say about me, there is no help for him in God. And you might be thinking, oh, well, this just sounds like a verbal attack from the outside. But the, the point I'm making here is that there are two levels of fear. They're completely integrated. You really can't separate one from the other. But let me show you what I mean. So David's son, Absalom, isn't just after David's life. He doesn't just want David dead. He wants to kill the the notion or the idea that David was ever worthy of sitting on the throne, throne whatsoever. He's after David's character, he's after his integrity, he's after his identity. And th- this statement, there is no help for him in God. Really, that's something that the entire nation of Israel is proclaiming, and it's causing David to begin to question his own identity. You see, Israel had this long track record. If you read the Old Testament, they've got this long track record of experience with terrible kings. And so what they're assuming to one degree or another is that this is just a carbon copy of what they're used to. This is a carbon copy of what's happened to countless kings like Saul, whose whose own like disobedience toward God really got him unseated from the throne. And so they're they're The people of Israel are, they're looking at David's life, and he did have some significant moral failures. He had an affair with Bathsheba, and then he didn't just stop there to cover it all up. He conspired and murdered Bathsheba's husband. And so, in a sense, this verse is the people of Israel pointing to every mistake that David has ever made in his life, and just assuming it's God's way of putting an end to not just David's life, but David's reputation, his identity, the belief that he was ever worthy of being a king. And so these external voices, and I'm sure you've experienced this, where the input you're taking ends up becoming a source of internal fear. And that's what's happening in David's life. He's facing two levels of fear. One's external. It's cha- it's, it's really threatening his physical well-being. It's threatening his security. And then the other one is more internal, and it's threatening His identity, his sense of self, and so we might not be kings or queens, and we might not have an army surrounding us. But I think some of us are facing, or have faced, or are destined to face circumstances that overwhelm us with these same feelings of of, of fear. Uh, Maybe you're you're navigating right now, or someone you care about is navigating a diagnosis, or maybe you're just terrified about the direction that things are seem to be headed in, socially or politically. Um, maybe you're terrified about the future for your kids, or maybe you're in a position where you're newly married and you're thinking about having kids and you're saying, I don't want to raise kids in this world that seems to be deteriorating as as fast as time is going by. I think some of us are in situations where our identities are literally under attack, or at least it feels that way. Life changed on a dime, and everything we had that gave us a sense of meaning has has now all of a sudden Disappeared. Um, I actually have a pretty good friend who recently retired from his medical practice. He'd been practicing medicine for a vast majority of his life. And the most frequent conversation or topic that comes up when we talk um, is, who am I now? You know, his, he had built his whole life around his medical practice and his identity as a doctor, and now he's navigating this season of life where he doesn't have that to lean on, and it's causing him a degree of anxiety. It's also given him time to, like, dabble in the arts and cook home-cooked meals and things like that. So there, there's certainly an upside to it, but on the average day, he's wondering who he really is because he spent so much time investing in this identity uh, as a, as a health care practitioner. And so um, I'm really just pointing that out to say there are two levels of fear. And for some of us, it's, it's coming at us in a more external way. And for some of us, it's coming at us internally. And, and in either, either regard, it's challenging. It causes us to be fearful and anxious. And so maybe... Maybe the, the fear in your life or the anxiety in your life stems from a relationship that came to an end, or a dream that died, or you know maybe you never envisioned having the, uh, the, the broken relationship with your kids that you're currently navigating, or maybe you're just not getting the recognition or approval uh, that you feel like you deserve. Maybe, maybe people, uh, as they were with David, are literally slandering you. That's a, that's a thing. Maybe you're being misrepresented and taking heat that you don't feel like you deserve, Um, bottom line is whether it's external or internal, we are all experiencing varying degrees of fear and anxiety. And here's what the triggers are for fear and anxiety. It's any time something external or internal threatens either our sense of security or our sense of identity or both. And so I think all of this, really what, what all of this gives us as something to consider is that we need, I need, I think you need it too, something far more stable than a career, a relationship, your physical health, the approval of others. And I don't think the answer to our fear and anxiety is more of anything we already have or less troubling circumstances. And I think that's what Psalm 3 is really pointing out. And it's also, it's a conclusion that people in our culture are making. People who don't even have, I'd say they're irreligious. They don't have a relationship with with, uh, with Jesus. Um, there's a man by the name of Andrew Sullivan. He draws the same conclusion that I think is drawn here in this psalm. And here's what he said. He wrote an article. And the title of the article is, The World is Better Than Ever, Why Are We Miserable? And here's what he highlights. He says, Despite how advanced our society has become, the rate of things like depression, addiction, despair, and loneliness continue to rise. And here's, here's his explanation. He says, as we've slowly and surely attained more progress, we've lost something that undergirds all of it. And his answer to that is meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all of our earthly needs. And I, I realize he's not directly talking about fear here, but what Sullivan is pointing out is that any time we turn to things for meaning and identity that don't deliver, we end up experiencing a degree of fear and anxiety in our lives. And this isn't a new message. This is something people have been saying for a number of years. Actually, um, at the turn of the 20th century, this was a common topic of people's research. Pastors talked about it. Psychologists delved into it. Writers wrote about the topic of fear and anxiety. And one of those people was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he delivered a sermon in 1933. And this was right before Hitler took power in Germany. It's post-World War I. And the title of his sermon was Overcoming Fear. And he was really aiming at what he was seeing uh, unfold culturally in his context. He thought that people in Germany in the aftermath of World War World War I were dealing with more fear and anxiety than ever. And here's how he opened that message. He says, fear is somehow or other the arch enemy itself it crouches in people's hearts it hollows out their insides until their resistance and strength are spent they suddenly break down and then you know fast forward a few years and you have a writer by the name of W H Auden he published a poem that's called the age of anxiety and what he he's writing on the heels of like the first for going on five decades of the 20th century, so 1900 and beyond. He's seen World War One, He's seen World War II. He's seen a pandemic. Uh, and these are, these are just the things that unfolded in a more like Western context. These are things that would have popped up on his news feed. And then in addition to that, the Great Depression. And what he was pointing out is you can't go through traumatic events like this without consequence. And according to him, we've been in this age of anxiety since the turn of the century. And now you fast forward to our context, we're still kind of grappling with the same, the same things, the same circumstances, economic precariousness, social unrest, racial tension. You got environmental stuff going on. And we're also navigating a lingering pandemic. And so there's growing fear and anxiety in our culture as well to the degree where the researchers are saying, like we're one of the most anxious groups of people that's ever existed. But I want to point something out because I think fear and anxiety have deep roots. They, they go, it goes way back beyond modern culture. If you rewind all the way back uh, to Genesis 3, you're going to encounter the first human beings. And um, from my vantage point, I, what I see there in Genesis 3 is that the first recorded emotional response from the first human beings is fear. Now, experts call fear the most primal of all of the emotions, and I think this just validates that. Fear has been something that's been riddling people for as long as people have been around. You see, Adam, uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had everything that they needed. Uh, they, they had nothing that they didn't that they were without, but they made a decision, and, and life changes on a dime, and it caused them to question everything. Everything that they had found their identity and security, and they were beginning to question to the degree that the sound of God's voice, something they were so familiar with, something that they had been so settled in, became utterly terrifying from them. And that fear, I think, the fear that struck Adam. The fear that struck Eve, it's been taking a toll on humanity ever since. And so the point of all this is that there are two levels of fear. We kind of differentiate things. We differentiate between them by calling one fear and the other anxiety. I think they, they go hand in hand. Um, One seems more external, one comes at us more internally And and all of that to say, I think how we process those emotions really does matter Now it might vary from culture to culture, religion to religion, person to person But how we process fear and anxiety matters And that's why I want to show you three things To help you process your fear and anxiety through prayer And here's what they are The, um, The first is be honest with God about your fear the second is be curious about your fear. And then lastly, use your fear to help you see Jesus more clearly. So first, uh, be honest with God about your fear. Listen to verse 3. It says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not an expert on battle gear, but I, I am relatively aware that there are different kinds of shields uh, for different kinds of combat. Some are for hand-to-hand combat. They're small. They're easy to manage, but they do require a lot of strength and agility and skill in order for them to lend any degree of protection. But there's another another kind of shield, and this is the kind of shield that David's talking about. It's about the size of a door, and it's designed to surround you completely for the most part. It's not designed for hand-to-hand combat. It's designed when you're experiencing an attack from all sides, kind of like the, the attack that David himself is. Is, has talked about in the, fir- in the opening verses of this psalm. It's, the ki- it's not the kind of shield that you would, like, carry into battle with you. Actually, it's the first thing you would shed if the heat got dialed up and, uh, and whoever was in command called for a re- retreat. And so the only way that this shield can lend you any degree of protection whatsoever is if you hide behind it and you trust the integrity of its design. And here's what that takes. It takes a great degree of honesty. And here's what I mean. In order to to get behind this shield, you've got to admit that what you're up against is beyond your physical strength, your skill, and your ability. And so in order to trust the strength of the shield, you have to be open and honest about the limits of your own strength. But the point here really isn't about shields, and it's not really about us. It's about God. And this line... You are a shield around me. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's going to prevent everything that that causes us fear and anxiety from happening. It it doesn't mean that. But what it does suggest is, is that God does something extremely unique and powerful when we follow him through the things that cause us fear and anxiety. And here's what that unique, powerful thing is. He becomes a shield that surrounds you. And the kind of shielding that, that David is talking about, it's of no use if you're running from God or you're living in denial or you're avoiding your fears or you're trying to face them on your own strength. The point, the point that I'm really trying to, to pr- present you with is this, that in order to truly deal, deal with your fear and anxiety, we have to be brutally honest with ourselves and God about what's actually going on in our own hearts we have to admit the things that are causing us fear and anxiety instead of suppressing them and when we do that God doesn't immediately eliminate what makes us fearful or anxious what he does is he surrounds us this is what the text tells us he surrounds us like a shield and he begins using those very things that feel like they have the power to crush us that feel like they have the power to get the best of us he starts using those things to shape us into the emotionally and spiritually healthy people that I think we really, really want to be. Um, this shield, here's what it is from my vantage point. It's a picture of us following God and facing our emotions rather than being controlled by them. And God can't surround you like a shield until you're honest enough to admit that you need him to. And so when it comes to following God, there is something that I want to point out. It's there's no shortage of stories about how difficult that is. I, I think personally, following God's led me on a journey to places I never really wanted to go, to deal with things that I never really wanted to deal with. It's caused me to confront parts of myself that uh, I'd rather just deny. But um, And so all that to say, obedience is hard. But the al- the alternative is way more difficult. In fact, I think disobedience is just outright Lethal. I think that's what the picture of this shield shows us. Obedience to God is hard, but disobedience is lethal. And and here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to scare anybody into belief or make you feel guilty. All I'm asking you to do is consider your options. You know that in this life we experience this constant ebb and flow of situations that make us fearful and anxious. And if you want to be freed of the power of fear and anxiety over you, I think the, the best way to do that is to, face our, to follow God and to face our fears and watch, allow him to, and then watch how he surrounds us like a shield. God's shielding works best when we obediently follow him to the places that he wants to take us spiritually, emotionally, sometimes physically. It, it, and God's shielding doesn't mean we aren't going to face adversity or experience loss or be struck with deep feelings of grief or have setbacks. What it does mean is that God, and I think this is extremely important, God is the kind of God who's capable of using all things for good, even the things that cause us the most fear. And so to the degree that we're honest with God is the degree to which we can follow God and actually face Our fear and anxiety. And now sometimes I realize that sometimes the way forward seems like a complete dead end. Uh, You might be facing something right now that feels like a complete dead end. So let me just show you this. There was a time in Jesus' life when this was the case. He was struck with fear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. And it's not because he's just nervous. Uh, He's terrified. He's being overwhelmed by fear. It says he was sweating blood. like This was the kind of sweat that could have led to death, the kind of anxiety that could have uh, taken his own life. Um, and what he was facing was a legitimate, valid reason to be scared. I think, I think what you're facing is a legitimate, valid reason to be fearful. But here's what Jesus does. He doesn't, he doesn't just resign to his circumstances. He doesn't just vent his circumstances. What he does is he gets brutally honest with God about the emotional turmoil that his cir- circumstances are creating in his life. And he follows God through the fear, even though it looked like it was leading to a dead end, even though the pathway he was taking seemed to be leading to a tomb. The good news is that it didn't actually lead to the tomb. In facing the tomb, Jesus actually faced our ultimate fear. In a way, and, 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 and he said this uh, way in advance of his crucifixion, it's recorded in John 5 24. But this is in facing the tomb, Jesus faced our ultimate fear. Um, so that whoever hides their life in Jesus is surrounded by a shield that allows us to cross over. These are Jesus' words. Allows us to cross over from death to life. Look, obedience to God is hard. I'll give you that. That's what, I mean, I've experienced that in my own life. And it can lead us to places that feel like dead ends. However, I think the alternative is lethal. Because the only way God's protection can surround you like this shield that David is talking about that will allow you to cross over from death to life is when you're honest with God about your fears and you follow him through your anxiety. So I just want to encourage you when you pray, be honest with God about your fear and anxiety and watch him surround you like a shield. But secondly, be curious about your fear. Let's take a look at the second part of verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. And here's the, here's the next part. This is that second part that I'm, I want you to focus on. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. Now, I think the only way David gets to a place in his life where he's able to say, in light of his fear and anxiety, you are my glory, it's because he's been honest with God. And it's also because he's been curious w- about what's causing his fear. And what I really mean there is David, I think David was relentlessly committed to to discovering what was really going on in his own heart and what was really causing his fear and anxiety. I think it was David's curiosity that led him to discover something hidden deep in his heart. And the deep fear and anxiety that he was experiencing is because the things he had built his security and identity on, and these were the approval of his people, his power as king, the love of his son, son Absalom, and even his moral record had completely deteriorated. Now, loss is hard, but loss isn't David's primary problem. His primary problem is that he had built his entire identity and sense of self-worth on the things that he lost. You see, the the, the word glory here, when David uses the word glory, and he's talking about who God is for him in this moment, it it means weight and significance. And basically for us, what that is, is it's anything that we choose to, to look to or build our lives on or derive a source of significance and meaning from. And so David was experiencing this deep, debilitating anxiety because the things he looked to for significance were gone. The things he was looking to, I think it's worth pointing out, they were good things, right? And I think the things that we look to for a sense of significance and identity can be good things. I think it's a good thing to have a successful career. I think it's a good thing to be an amazing spouse. I think it's a good thing to have a robust prayer life. I think it's a good thing to have high moral standards. I think it's a good thing to plan for the future. I think it's a good thing to have financial security. I think it's a good thing to live a life marked by generosity. And so here's what I'm really getting at. The primary problem with any of the things that we look to for significance really isn't whether or not they're good. It's that they're finite, and I think we need something that that's going to give us an infinite significance. However, the real challenge we have is we we look for that infinite significance in things that are finite. And here's what I think is true about finite things: they have an expiration date, and because they have an expiration date, they're always going to leave us feeling fragile, anxious, and fearful. Um, the fact that they expire is what makes them vulnerable and fragile. And if we build our lives, this is just logic here, if we build our lives on things that are vulnerable and fragile, I think we're going to become vulnerable and fragile. And, but if we build our lives on the infinite God, I think that's where strength comes from. That's where the protection comes from. I think that there, that if we build our lives on anything other than the infinite God, the alternative is that we become vulnerable, fragile, fearful, And anxious, and so David's curiosity about his fear and anxiety really is what helped him discover how fragile his own life was. I think it'll do the same thing for you if you give it a shot. And I think this also shows us that really it's not enough to deny or your fear or suppress your anxiety. It's not enough to just vent it. Well, here's what here's what I'm just asking you to consider. Maybe consider that your fear and anxiety is more like a smoke signal. And I think if you're curious enough about the smoke. It's going to lead you to the fire. And here's what the fire is. It's anything you've built your life on that's too finite to meet your need for an identity that's infinitely strong enough to hold up when everything around you is falling apart. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Really, this is a picture of David's curiosity about his fear and anxiety that allowed him to discover that as great as it was, To have the approval of his people, as great as it was to be king of one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time, as great as all the things he had access to were in his life, none of those things could actually settle his fear and anxiety or free him from them. And so as great as the career is, or as great as the approval of your friends and family is, as great as the the financial plan is, as great as the future outlook is, none of these things are stable enough to provide for us the level of emotional and spiritual stability that our lives demand. And so this is the discovery that David made. And I think this is what allowed him to realize that the only thing stable enough, the only strong enough. The only thing capable of sustaining us through our deepest fears and anxiety is the love and approval of an infinite God. That's what David means when he says, you're the one who lifts up my head. He's saying God's love and approval is the only thing capable of lifting him up in a way that actually deals with his fear and anxiety. And so in the face of fear and anxiety, I think curiosity can help you discover things about yourself that might be hard to admit. But when you discover them and you're willing to admit them and replace them with God's love and approval, I think you can begin to experience free freedom from your fear and anxiety. So when you pray, be curious enough to ask God to help you discover the source of your fear and anxiety. And then ask God to help you replace that with His love and approval. So, be honest with God about your fear. Be curious about your fear, but lastly, um, use your fear to help you see Jesus more clearly now, based on david 's track record there 's no doubt that he's he 's haunted by his own moral failure, his affair, the conspiracy. Uh, the murder to cover it all up. And and, and even if he wasn't aware, what's very clear here is the entire nation of Israel, all the people that used to love and adore and clap for him are aware of it. And they're reminding him of it, right? And so if David has such a terrible track record, here's the question that comes to mind. If David has, has fallen so hard, if David has made such big mistakes, if David's life is anything like mine, riddled with mistakes, riddled with mishaps, Maybe, maybe that resonates with you. Maybe it doesn't. If David's life is such a train wreck, what made him so sure? How can, he, how can he be so sure that he had access to God's love and approval? How can someone so broken believe that they have access to the love and, improve, love and approval of a holy God? Listen to what David says in verse 4. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now, um, what David is really doing is he's turning his attention to Zion. And in in a little bit about Zion, it's a place where reconciliation happens. It's a place where wrongs are righted. It's a place where people are made right with God. And and David is looking towards Zion. And some of the words that he's used all throughout Psalm 3, really what they are is a flashback to this encounter that Abraham had with God that's recorded in Genesis 15. At that time, Abraham was being so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, God ends up approaching him. And here's what he says to Abraham. This is in Genesis 15. God says to Abraham, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your reward will be very great. So God is literally telling Abraham, I'm your shield and I am your glory. The, the, the two things that David was trying to reconcile and believe about God. And so when when David talked about God being a shield that surrounds him and God has his glory, what he was really doing is he was fixing his eyes on this promise that God had spoken to Abraham. David is dealing and processing, dealing with and processing his fear and anxiety by looking to the same God who helped Abraham deal with his fear. So when he cries out to the Lord, he's showing us that he just has the same question that Abraham had. And he has the same question I think we have. And, and the question is this, that how do we know? How do we know God is actually going to... Give us access to his love and approval. How do we know that he's actually going to surround us like a like a shield? How do we know that he's going to surround us and protect us through our fear and anxiety, through things that feel so heavy, that are impacting every area of our lives, that seem like they're just going to crush us? How do we know? When, how do we know that God is going to use those things to shape us and mold us, use them for good and, and, and cause us to become through them the people that he's intended for us to be? How do we know? When David cries out, to the Lord. Really, that's what he's saying. He's saying, God, how can I know? It's the same question Abraham asked. And when Abraham asked God, how can I know? God told Abraham. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. And it sounds a little peculiar. Um, If I said, God, how can I know? And I got this. I don't know what I would do. Like, I'd have more questions. But Abraham didn't. He knew exactly what God was driving at and what he was getting at. And here's what Genesis 15, 9 says. This is God's response to Abraham. He says, bring me a three-year-old cow. <laughs> I don't know where to find a three-year-old cow. <laughs> I don't even know where milk comes from. Just kidding. I do know where milk comes from. But This is what God says. Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham knew exactly what God was getting at, and here's what he thought. He thought God is asking, He's going to ask me to make a promise. It's all going to be on me. God is inviting me uh, to make a promise to Him. It's going to be one way. God, God is asking Abraham to make a promise to himself and see see back then um, you didn't really sign contracts and so i i, I, I want to say this i just want to point out what's really at work here because this is not just a peculiar story this is this is an ama- it's one of the most powerful things i think most powerful pictures of god's grace uh, perhaps in the in the entire old testament um, abraham's anticipating making a promise back then you didn't sign a contract you'd get animals and you'd as odd as this sounds, you'd cut them in pieces, and then you would walk between the pieces. And as you did so, you'd just recite the terms and conditions of the promise. And what you were ultimately doing is relating to these severed animals. And what you were confessing is that if, if, you, if there was any failure on your part to live up to your end of the bargain, if there was any failure of you on your part to... Uh, to live up to the terms and conditions of the contract or the promise. Let you be cursed like these animals. Let death come on you like death came on these animals. And so when Abraham collected these animals, this is what he thought he was going to do. He was going to cut them in two and walk between them and recite this promise to God. But then darkness came and something powerfully unique happened. And here's what it is. God himself walked between the animals and instead of abraham making a promise to god god made a promise to abraham and here's what the promise was he promised to welcome abraham all the way into his family and to honor him and and to to take away his sins Ultimately, one time, once and for all, he, he made a complete promise to Abraham. And what David is doing, all he's doing here is he's looking, he's looking to Mount Zion and he's remembering this story and he's trying to fix his eyes on God's faithfulness. And he, but, but there's something that he can't see. That that I think you and I can see way more clearly than David ever did. Way more clearly than Abraham ever did. What David didn't really realize is that centuries later, God would make full on his promise. He would deliver full on that promise when he sent his son Jesus. And instead of walking between the animals, Jesus actually became the sacrificial lamb who was sacrificed once and for all so that people like you and I can have full access to God's love and approval. Because of Jesus, this is the answer to the question. Here's how we can know. Because of Jesus, this is how we can know. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can know that God loves us and he's with us. Look, I, I know. I know that fear is and anxiety can be so debilitating and blinding. But what I'm trying to help you see is if you, if you if you see your fear and anxiety more as a smoke signal or a trigger that helps you see Jesus more clearly and you process it through prayer by being honest with God and being curious enough to try to get to the bottom of those areas of your life that need to change. Maybe the ways that you've built an identity on things that are just fragile And unstable. Here's what I think God will do. I think he'll do the same thing that he did for Abraham. I think he'll do the same thing that he did for David. I think he'll do the same thing that he's done for countless people through the course of history. He will surround you the same way he surrounded David. And he will show up for you the same way that he showed up for Abraham. And instead of demanding that you make a promise to him, he makes a promise to you. That no matter the personal cost to himself, he'll deal with the deepest, darkest parts of our lives so that we can be set free of, of the power of fear and anxiety over us. And when we're free, when we're free from its power, here's what, I think, here's what I think happens. We can begin using our fear and anxiety to help us see Jesus more clearly. And when we do, uh, here's, what I, here's what I think we'll discover we'll discover to greater depths that Jesus is the only one who, when we center our lives on Him and when we make Him our glory, He doesn't judge us. He takes our full judgment so that we never come under judgment. And instead, we pass from death to life, from judgment to freedom, from fear to hope. And so to the degree that you use your fear and anxiety to help you see Jesus more clearly, And to allow Jesus to become your glory. The one you base your identity on. Fear and anxiety will lose their power over you. If you want to process your fear and anxiety in a way that leads to the kind of emotional and spiritual health that I think you want. I know I want it. I think you want it too. I think everybody deep down wants to be emotionally and spiritually healthy. I think if you want that, you're going to have to learn to process your fear and anxiety through prayer that allows you to be completely and like just brutally honest with yourself and God about your fear. It's the kind of prayer that allows you to be curious about your fear. And it's the kind of prayer that allows you to use your fear to help see Jesus more clearly. Let me pray for us. God, um, I think we'd be silly to pretend that we're not surrounded by circumstances and situations that do. They, They... they make us fear, feel fearful and anxious. And I know that there are people right now who, uh, who today are looking at a circumstance that they don't have an answer for or a situation, uh, that they don't know how they're actually going to navigate or face. God, there are countless things that we experience in this life that cause us to question uh, even your faithfulness and uh, our ability to stand. And God, I just ask that in the face of our fear and anxiety that you'd help us to become the kind of people that aren't debilitated by it, but we're the the kind of people that are mobilized to move into your presence, uh, to trust you as a shield that surrounds us, to be honest with you about what's really going on in our own hearts, to be curious enough to ask you to help us discover the parts of our lives that need to change. And God, that we would see our fear and anxiety as an opportunity to see Jesus more clearly. God, help us to become people, uh, people whose lives are marked by an openness and a willingness to trust you even when you're causing us to follow you down pathways that seem like they lead to dead ends. Because we want to know in our heart of hearts, help us to become people that are convinced that you're the kind of God that works all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Amen.